As I said, we're gonna wrap up Paul's letter to the Galatians today. I hope you've been blessed by our study. It's been packed full of repeated encouragements to walk and live in the freedom of the gospel, to love in the freedom of the gospel, to serve in the freedom of the gospel. Indeed, the message of Galatians is one that we have to return to over and over again because we tend to wonder and very easily give up the freedom that we have in Christ. We need to be reminded to walk in it and to stand in it on a regular basis. So Paul's gonna share some final words and thoughts and he's gonna talk about what the cross has done for each of us. So with that, let's jump in Galatians 6.11. Paul says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Paul's custom was to dictate his letters to a scribe because he likely suffered from some type of ailment that affected his eyes, causing them to ooze fluid. And we talked about the clues that hinted at that back in Galatians chapter four, verses 13 and 15. And while he may have written this whole letter himself, that's a possibility, it's most likely that at this point, he takes the pen himself to write the final greeting. This was something Paul did on a regular basis. He did it very obviously in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Corinthians 16, and also Colossians 4. So why does Paul do this? Why does he take the pen and write the greeting at the end of the letter himself? Well, it's because there had been some forgeries, fake letters attributed to Paul that had been passed around some of the churches where he ministered. Prominent examples being 2 Corinthians, which was basically written to clear up issues that were created by a fake 2 Corinthians that had been passed around that church, and 2 Thessalonians, which you might recall when we studied it, Paul told the Thessalonians not to let their faith be shaken because they read something in a letter that was supposedly from him that contradicted something he had taught them earlier. So here in verse 11, Paul references writing with large letters because his eye issue would have made it very hard for him to see. And as a result, when he wrote with his own hand, he would have to write with abnormally large handwriting, large letters. And those who knew him personally would be familiar with this and recognize it as an authenticating mark of a genuine Pauline letter. Verse 12, he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised. So he's speaking here about the infamous Judaizers and Paul says, they don't really care about you guys at all. They're trying to convert you to make what he calls a good showing in the flesh. In other words, they wanna make themselves feel good about themselves, to make themselves feel like they're being good and earning points with God by spreading their message of following the law. We've talked about this a lot in this series, but we're all drawn to religious rites. We're drawn to rituals and ceremonies and liturgies and other practices in part because they're just so satisfying to our flesh. Why? This is why. Because they allow us to put on a great display of religious devotion without having to get our hearts right or having to rely on the Holy Spirit. When there's a rite or a ritual or a chant or something we can do or a sacred place we can go, it doesn't matter what state our heart is in. It doesn't matter what state our relationships are in with other people. We can go do the ritual, say the words, chant the prayer, do whatever we gotta do and, and feel spiritual and feel like a good person without having to actually do any of the things involving the heart, getting our heart right with the Lord. Basically, religion is so appealing to our flesh because it enables us to appear devout and holy on the outside without having to do anything on the inside. So make a note of this. Religion appeals to our flesh because it enables us to appear externally devout even when we're internally indifferent. We can appear externally devout even when we're internally indifferent. You'll hear this a lot if you have friends even who are non-Christian. If you say, do you have a belief system or anything, maybe you've had friends or coworkers who will say, they often use a phrase like, I'm, I'm very spiritual or I'm very religious. Oh, what do you mean by that? Oh, well I meditate or I chant or I do this. It's do, 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 because all these things allow you to feel spiritual, feel connected to God without having to actually do anything with your spirit, with your heart before the Lord. And for those who choose to live this way, 
guys like the Judaizers, Jesus had a few things to say back in his day in the Sermon on the Mount. I put them on your outline. Just a couple of excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men. So in other words, in front of an audience, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They would actually do this. Some of the the rich men who wanted to be seen as being pious, they would have a trumpeter go before them. I'm giving alms to the poor. Look what I'm doing here. Look what I'm doing here. Charity, charity. Look how good I am. And we, we think, oh, that's ridiculous. But, but we have our modern version of that, don't we? I mean, celebrities, people post on Twitter just here, you know, serving food in a soup kitchen to the needy. It's the exact same thing. Anytime somebody publicly announces the charitable good that they're doing, they're doing the exact same thing. Twitter is the trumpet. Facebook is the trumpet. You know, if you're a Christian, though, you have to do it a little bit backhandedly to sound humble. So you have to do something like, so blessed to be able to serve today. That's a really, really good way to do that, right? And then have a picture of you like helping someone less fortunate, you know. So blessed to be the hands and feet of Jesus today. (laughs) Oh, man. And then Jesus goes on and he says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward that they would find a a prominent place to stand and then pray as loudly as they could. Probably a pre-written prayer that would sound eloquent and people would go, oh man, that that guy is so spiritual. For the person who gives publicly and and the person who prays publicly, Jesus says they've, they've had their reward. They got their praise from men. They're not getting any from their heavenly father. They already have their audience. They didn't do it for their heavenly father. They did it for that audience. Then Jesus says, moreover, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So these guys, when they were fasting, they would actually like rub a little ash on their cheeks to look like, you know, sullen and and really look tired and walk around going like, oh, oh, man. Oh, are you okay? Oh, no, it's, it's nothing. I'm just... I'm just on day five of fasting right now, uh, just really seeking the Lord, and so I'm just feeling a little bit tired. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Just go about your normal life. Don't let people know that you're doing that because then you've had your reward. And to the scoffing Pharisees, Jesus gave this specific warning about their religious ways. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So you're not looking for God to say that you're clean and forgiven and holy. You want other people to tell you that. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He's saying there's no connection between the things men applaud you for and the things that God is impressed with. What would Jesus have said to the Judaizers if he were in Galatia in the flesh at this time? Well, I think we have good reason to believe it would have been something similar to what he said in Matthew 23, 15. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. If you haven't picked it up, Jesus is not a fan of empty religious behavior and he's really not a fan of recruiting other people to join you in your empty religious behavior. The original Greek word for compel that's used there in verse 12 in Galatians 6 is a sales term. The idea is like a pushy salesman. And that's what Paul says the Judaizers are doing to the Galatian believers. He says, I know that in their empty religion that they're being real pushy to have you come do it with us. Come be circumcised. Come do what we do. Why are they doing that? Paul says, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. You see, the Judaizers wanted circumcision because they didn't want persecution. I'll explain. If they actually listened to Paul, if they actually considered what he said, if they actually evaluated his message and his arguments in light of the scriptures, they would have found them to be undeniably correct. And that would have required them to change. And that change would have made them an enemy of the Jewish religious leadership. Because the Judaizers were ethnic Jews. And if they had said, yeah, we're going to follow what Paul is teaching, they would have 
become enemies of the Jewish religious leadership and a target of the very kind of persecution that they had been inflicting upon Paul. Paul says, the Judaizers look at me and what I've suffered for the gospel. They don't want any part of it. That's why they're pushing circumcision and the law on you guys because the alternative would lead to persecution. Many of the Judaizers, they claimed to be part of the church, but they had realized they could avoid persecution from their Jewish brethren if they were part of the church, but they denied Jesus' work on the cross. So in other words, they said, listen, the resurrection, the atonement, all that stuff, it didn't happen, it's not real, you still need to adhere to the law, you still need to be circumcised. And so that's why they held on to that belief. They were like, cool, we can be a part of the church, just deny the cross and then not have to deal with any persecution. This is a win-win. They also hoped that by following the law of Moses, they could keep their protected status as Jews in the Roman Empire because Jews were allowed to worship as Jews in the Roman Empire, but Christians were frequently under suspicion and persecution from the Romans and the Judaizers were thinking, how can we stay in the Jewish class and not the Christian class? But the simple fact, of course, is this. If you deny the work of Jesus on the cross, then you deny Christianity. You are not only not part of the church, you're not part of Christ. You have no part in him. The Judaizers had no part in Christ. They were not saved because the cross, the resurrection, the atonement, all that stuff, it's non-negotiable if you're a Christian. It's what makes you a Christian. If you don't believe it, you can call yourself a Christian but only in the sense that you could also call yourself Superman. It would have no basis in reality. The Judaizers were not a different flavor of Christianity. They were not Christians. But that's always the way it is. Most people like the general message of Christianity until you get to the cross because the, the cross is offensive. Everybody likes the idea that there's a loving heavenly father, that there's a God that wants good for you, that there's a God who, who made you with purpose and with destiny. But when you get to the cross, you get to the part where it says that we're so messed up that we cannot repair ourselves. You get to the part that says, not only can you not repair yourself, but you actually can't contribute in any way to God repairing you. He's gotta do it all. You've got really nothing to offer. The cross is intolerant because it's the only way to be saved. The cross is disturbing because the people that we consider to be good, like us, need it as much as the people that we think are bad. The cross robs us of any trace of being able to be our own savior. Any concept that we deserve this. The cross is either the greatest thing in your life or it's disgusting to you. If it's neither, then it just means you don't understand it at all. Because if you understand it, there's no middle ground. It's either the most beautiful thing in the world to you or it's completely abhorrent. So would you make a note of this? When the cross is removed from Christianity, so too is our only means of salvation. When the cross is removed from Christianity, so too is our only means of salvation. Jesus the philosopher cannot save you. Jesus the good teacher cannot save you. Only Jesus the Messiah who died on the cross can save you. Verse 13, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Would you underline that word boast? We'll come back to that. Paul says the Judaizers aren't even actually trying to keep the law. Sure, they're all about circumcision, because in reality, that's easy. It's a one-time thing. But living for God wholeheartedly every day, that's hard. And so they don't even try to do that. They're not actually trying to keep the 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, and yet they want you to be circumcised and join them in their powerless, empty, perverted version of religion. He's saying that Judaizers were hypocrites, and that hypocrisy is always rooted in cowardice because hypocrisy means that you're living your life in fear of people finding out who you actually are and how you actually live. All hypocrisy comes back to cowardice. You're living in a way to hide who you actually are because you don't have the courage to actually live as who you are. You're ashamed of who you actually are. And trying to live under the law, 
naturally breeds hypocrisy because you can only live under the law by pretending that it's working. You have to pretend that you're actually keeping the law. You have to pretend that there's actually a hope of you keeping the law. So you actually have to, by nature, be a hypocrite to try and live under the law because nobody can. Paul also says, he says, why do the Judaizers want you to join them? Just so that they can boast about adding new recruits to their numbers, so they can have more notches in their belts, so that they can get kudos from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, so that they can further convince themselves that they're right. Perhaps you've noticed a sad truth about human nature, you and I included, but when we're wrong about something, we always feel better if someone else joins us in our error, don't we? It eases our conscience a little bit and then we can use the other person's actions to justify our own. See, they agree with me, he agrees with me, she agrees with me. Or we can say, well, will all these other people get it? This is why in the world of addiction, you, you can't have someone who's actively an addict counseling someone else who's an addict. Well, that's all that ends up happening. They end up saying, well, I messed up. Well, so did I. I guess we're not that bad. So it doesn't work. When we suspect that we're wrong about a view we hold, but we want to keep holding that view, we're generally going to try and find someone who will affirm our view, someone we can convince, or someone that also holds that view so that we can justify holding on to it. What Paul is getting at here, write this down, is that the heart of any religion, the heart of any religion is what you boast in. The heart of any religion is what you boast in. To put it another way, the heart of every religion is rooted in the answer to this question. What is the reason that you think you are in right relationship with God? If you want to get to the essence of any religion, it's the answer to this question. What is the reason that you think you are in right relationship with God? That you're good with God? That you're good with the universe? What is the reason you think that? There's really only two options. Your goodness or God's goodness. Your works or God's provision. Every religion in the world is works-based, law-based, person-based, except for Christianity, which alone is grace-based. That's the unique characteristic of Christianity. It's grace-based. Oh, the packaging might vary, but the truth is that only the gospel gives hope to the person who is honest enough to recognize their own inadequacy. Only the gospel gives us hope because of what God has done, not what we can try and inevitably fail to do. Christianity teaches that our hope is in divine accomplishment, what God has accomplished, what he has done. Every other religion teaches that our hope is in human achievement, what we can do. Human achievement, however it's packaged, ultimately has me as the God figure. Even when I'm supposedly serving another God, I am in reality, at least in my life, assuming the role of God in the sense that my salvation is within my power. I am the X factor. I am the one who accomplishes. I am the one who does the good works. I am the one who earns my place. The gospel, the truth, salvation, is only for the one who's honest enough to look at themselves and realize the truth that we're broken and cannot fix ourselves. And to that person, the gospel says, I've got good news because you're absolutely right. You cannot fix yourself. But the God who made you, the God who loves you, has made a way for you to be made whole. The heart of any religion is what you boast in. And in light of that truth, Paul says this in verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast, underline the word boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we forget, we forget just how appalling crucifixion was in the Greco-Roman world at this time. You're probably familiar enough with how, how incredibly painful it was 
But it wasn't just designed to be painful, it was designed to be degrading, to be humiliating. It was considered so abhorrent that Roman citizens could not be crucified. It wasn't spoken about in polite company. The mere mention of the practice would make people recoil and swiftly seek to change the subject. They used other words, other euphemisms for crucifixion to avoid speaking about it directly. Imagine if, just to give you a little bit of a taste here, imagine if Jesus had walked the earth today and we had followed him as our savior today and he had come to the earth to die today and his life had ended in a public hanging in the town square. Body left hanging for several hours. And then now imagine that we started boasting about what Jesus had accomplished through his public hanging. It would seem, it seem awkward, right? It would seem offensive, it would seem illogical to everyone except those who understood what had really happened. And that's what it was like when believers like Paul talked about boasting in the cross of Christ. The cross hadn't been a sacred symbol for millennia like it has for us at that point in history. At that point in history, it was bizarre to those who didn't understand the gospel. You're going to boast in the cross of Christ? You're going to boast about the fact your Savior was crucified? This was strange to them at that point. So Paul now lays out three reasons why we should boast in the cross of Christ. He says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So write this down. Firstly, the cross frees us from the bondage to the world system. The cross frees us from bondage to the world system. You see, without Jesus, every single one of us is victim to the world system, which the Bible tells us more than once is under the control of Satan. The whole world system, the economic system, the political system, the system of what it takes to be famous, the system of dog eat dog, get ahead at the cost of others, that whole world system is under the control of Satan. And that world system destines us to live ultimately meaningless lives. When I say meaningless, I don't mean that you don't have moments in life where you think, oh, I've got a purpose. I mean that whatever you do doesn't actually mean anything. Without God, oh, I cured hunger in Africa, great. Why does it mean anything? Well, I alleviated their suffering for a little bit. Great. Why does that mean anything? Without Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. It'll get you some applause. It'll make somebody's life easier, but it's, it's meaningless. Without Jesus, there's no eternal hope. There's no ultimate reason for being. Why live? Well, to make a difference. Again, why? What's the point? We're born into this world system without Jesus. We're living for our flesh, left to blindly chase the emptiness that the world sells. This will make you happy. I'll chase that. This will make you happy. I'll chase that. Haunted by our past and regret or guilt over the things we've done or we failed to do, yet powerless to assuage our guilt or anxiety. Fascinated by the idea that, that maybe tomorrow Maybe the future will bring something better. Why are we fascinated with the future as human beings? Because without any rational reason, it's one of the only things that people can hope might hold something better. Maybe the future will hold something better. If you haven't figured it out yet, all we do with technological advantage is use it to make more money and take more sophisticated advantage of people. Talked about this many times. What did world travel actually enable us to do? Pay people 50 cents an hour to make stuff in China for us. That's what we did with it. We didn't improve the human race. We just recruited a new class of slave labor so that we could have cheaper stuff so that a few people could make a whole lot more money. And yet we keep hoping maybe the future will hold something better. How's social media working out for us? Not so good. Maybe the future holds something better. Because of robots, we'll only have to work an hour a day. Remember that? Or, or we could just pay fewer people even less and make even more money. That's what ended up happening, isn't it? Without Jesus, we're just destined for a life of disappointment, unfulfillment, or meaningless hedonism. 
However you frame it, however you disguise it, every non-believer is in bondage to the futilities and the frustration of the world system, whether they realize it or not. In contrast, the believer knows that his past, present, and future sins are forgiven through the death of Jesus. His conscience is eased. His guilt and shame are taken away. His present is in the care of the Holy Spirit and his power. The believer's ultimate treasures are in heaven, as is his eternal home and his rewards, and most importantly, his heavenly Father and his Savior. The things the believer loves most are waiting for him after this life. The believer's greatest hopes are assured and secured by Jesus and can never be lost or stolen. In this present life, the believer experiences God's presence and blessings, his love and peace, and the sense of belonging that comes from being a child of God. The world is a future appointment with the wrath of God, believers do not. The believer is not going down with the world, the believer's been saved from the world. The world no longer has authority to tell us what to do or how to live, only Jesus does. We have no more legal relationship with the world, we don't belong to the world. When praying for his disciples, Jesus said, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. All works-based religions are part of the world system. That's why Paul said in so many different ways that he became dead to the law when he became alive to Christ because, as weird as this sounds, the law is part of the world system in the sense that it is a system where we try to save ourselves, which of course we can't. If you're alive to Christ, you're dead to the world and you're dead to the law. And that is freedom, because it means the world has nothing that you have to have. That's freedom, when the world has nothing that you have to have. The world no longer has any control over you and I. And amazingly, that allows us to actually enjoy the good parts of the world, because we don't need to fear the world and we don't need to worship the world. We can just enjoy the good gifts that God gives us for what they are. Paul says, hey, I don't live for the world's approval anymore. I'm not living for popularity or acclaim. When I gave my life to Jesus, I became dead to the world and the world became dead to me. Paul's point is that the Judaizers were living for fleshly, worldly stuff underneath everything they said. They were living for their ego, for their pride. They wanted the approval of man. They wanted status. Paul says, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm, I'm living for eternity. He couldn't care less about earthly, temporary stuff, and Paul actually lived a life that backed that up. Verse 15, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, or accomplishes anything, but here's what does, a new creation. So write this down. Secondly, the cross accomplished what the flesh could not, genuine spiritual transformation. The cross accomplished what the flesh could not, genuine spiritual transformation. In our flesh, we try to do all these works to become a good person because we hope that maybe if I do this stuff, I'll become someone different on the inside. And if you're honest with yourself, you realize that never works. You can play a part for a little while in fits and bursts, but you know that within yourself, you're still the same person. You know that if you go serve at the soup kitchen, even every day, you don't actually become a different person. There's still all that same messed up stuff within you even though you can make yourself do things that appear to be good for a while. There's no amount of actions you can take that will actually change who you are. Only God can do that. Paul, for example, the guy who wrote Galatians, he did his best to live a life under the law, to become righteous through his own good works, to do everything the scripture said to do, do you know where it got him? He ended up persecuting the Son of God. He ended up persecuting Jesus. No outward religious symbol or ritual or ceremony can save us. As Jesus told Nicodemus, do you remember this? Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You wanna be part of the kingdom of God? There's gotta be a change within you. It's not anything that you have to do or can do, it's what God does in you. When we place our faith in Jesus, we become what the Bible calls born again. 
We receive a new spirit. We receive God's spirit. And that's the only issue when it comes to salvation. Have you been born again? It's an all or nothing question. You can't be half born again. Or you can't be becoming born again. You either are or you are not. All the law could do was show us how far short we were falling of God's standards. The law couldn't change us. But the cross changed us because through the cross, we can become a new creation. We can be born again. Now in verse 16, Paul says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. You might want to underline the Israel of God. Paul gives a blessing to those who he says walk according to this rule. What rule? Well, the rule he just described in the previous verse, verse 15, the rule that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The rule that there's no ritual, there's no good works that you can do that accomplish anything. The only thing that means anything is that you've been born again. So thirdly, third reason to boast in the cross. Paul reminds us that the cross offers salvation to anyone who desires to be born again and become a new creation. Write that down. It's worth boasting in the cross because it offers salvation to anyone who desires to be born again and become a new creation. Including the Judaizers is what Paul was hinting at here. Even if they had said, man, I want to become a new creation, Paul would have said, great, the gospel's for you. And here's an encouragement for you and I. If we will live by this rule, if we will live in and walk in the freedom of the gospel, we will have peace and mercy, peace and mercy. To the degree that we remember to live in light of the work of Jesus on the cross, we will have peace and mercy. To the degree that we take that upon ourselves, we will not. To the degree that we remember we needed to be saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. We will have peace and mercy with other people because we'll remember that we needed the grace of God. We'll have peace and mercy. Now here in verse 16, Paul blesses two groups who believe that, who believe that rule. The first group, the first them, is Galatian believers. And then Paul calls the second group the Israel of God. We've got to go to school for just a couple of minutes here, and I'll try and keep it real simple. But before we get into the controversy surrounding this term, the Israel of God, you need to know that when you go to the original Greek that Paul wrote this in, the original Greek is crystal clear that these are two different groups in verse 16. Paul is not describing the same group in two different ways. They are two different groups, and the Greek is explicit about that. There's no confusion. Again, I won't go deep into it, but if you're into it, the Greek word chi, which we translate as the word and, and the preposition used for the word upon, which is the Greek word epi, would lead any competent Greek scholar to conclude that the writer is speaking about two different groups. And I always sound confident talking about this because I know no one's going to argue with me when I start talking about Greek, right? I could be making this all up, but I'm not. I'm very confident about it. So if the first group is Galatian believers, then what is the second group, the Israel of God? I'll give you the answer up front. The Israel of God is Jewish believers. It's Jewish believers. In Romans 9, Paul identified two groups within Israel, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. Paul said this in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. He said, speaking about Jews, for they are not all Israel, who are of Israel, nor are they all children of Israel, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Let me explain what he's saying there. Paul's saying, in other words, true Israel is made up of those who place their faith in the promises of God, who place their faith in the Messiah that God promised to send. Paul goes on to write about these two Israels, believing Israel and unbelieving Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. You could also call believing Israel spiritual Israel if you wanted to. There's a physical Israel, obviously, that's the land itself. But here's the punchline, write this down. Spiritual Israel, believing Israel, and the term the remnant are all synonyms for the Israel of God 
for Jewish believers. So all these terms in the Bible refer to Jewish believers. Spiritual Israel, believing Israel, the remnant, the Israel of God. These are all talking about Jewish believers. And if you can understand that, you're going to be able to understand a whole bunch of stuff in the New Testament that a lot of believers get tripped up on, especially in the writings of Paul. Paul just stated in the previous verse, in verse 15, that the only thing that matters with regard to salvation is being born again. His point here is that the dividing line between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel is the question, are you born again? And so what he's saying here is essentially that true Israel, the Israel of God, is made up of Jews who are believing Jews, believing Israel. Jeff, why are you sharing all this? Because there are a lot of churches and a lot of denominations that teach different versions of what's known as covenant theology or replacement theology. Those systems teach that the church is actually spiritual Israel and that Gentile believers, so people like you and I become spiritual Jews. Basically, they teach that God is done with the Jewish people and the church has replaced Israel in the plans of God and in the eyes of God. And Galatians 6.16, while we're there, is their go-to verse for defending this position. They claim that Paul is describing the same group, the church, in two different ways. As those who walk according to the rule of being born again and as the Israel of God. The problems with that view are are pretty straightforward. As I mentioned already, the the Greek makes it very clear, very clear that Paul's speaking about two different groups. But additionally, the word Israel appears around 77 times in the New Testament. And every single time, every single time, it is referring to ethnic Jews or national Israel. Every single time. There is no logical reason at all this one time to interpret it differently just because you want to create a system of theology that would require you to do that. We have a precedent of this being mentioned 77 other times. Every other time in the New Testament, it refers to national or ethnic Israel, but they want to change the meaning of it in this one verse. There's no justification for doing that. So why do people even want to hold this view? You might be thinking, well, well, well then why do they do it, Jeff? It actually has nothing to do with Israel for the most part. It has to do with eschatology, what the Bible teaches about the end times. If you want to learn more about this, give a study to the book of Revelation that we have on our website. Uh, I don't have time to explain this all in detail, so if I say a term you're not familiar with, I'm sorry, we just can't get into all of that in the time we have this evening. But basically across the centuries, believing what the Bible says about the end times was considered alternatingly either offensive or silly by politicians and academics. So a theological position called amillennialism was created. Amillennialism just means no millennium. It teaches basically that the things in the end times that the Bible talks about are not going to unfold Literally. In other words, when you read a Bible prophecy about the end times, what happens at the end of the world, those things aren't actually going to happen. They're all metaphors, they're all allegories, it's all visual language, it's all poetry, that sort of thing. But one of the problems for amillennialism, for that position, is that Israel, real, ethnic, and physical Israel, is all over what the Bible says about the end times. They show up all the time there, spoken about like it's a literal thing. And unfortunately for the amillennialist, Jews, ethnic Israel, have continued to exist. Even worse, in 1948, national Israel began to exist again. So the amillennialist was put in a tricky position because they claim that biblical eschatology is essentially allegorical but ethnic and national Israel exist literally, and they appear all over biblical eschatology. So, so what do you do about this? I mean, how do you say something is not speaking literally when it literally exists? Like, this is a real problem. They really had no choice. If they wanted to hold to amillennialism, they had to come up with a doctrine that solved the problem of Israel literally existing, and they did, they did. The solution was replacement or covenant theology. 
claiming that the church had replaced Israel. That allowed them to say, hey, all these prophecies about Israel, they're just allegorical things about the church. When it says that Jesus is gonna come and set up his kingdom on the earth and sit on the throne of David, that, that's, that's all a metaphor for what Jesus has done in the hearts of everyone who's part of the church. Because back when Augustine and Origen and those guys were all working for Roman emperors, they were hearing some end times teachings and they were saying, uh, <laughs> I'm not really a fan of this whole teaching of your church that Jesus is gonna come and set up his kingdom and put an end to all other kingdoms on the earth. I'm Caesar, I'm a god. This is a little offensive to my divine nature. And so they said, well, well, well here's the thing. I, I really like my job working for the Holy Roman Church, the state church. I'm a really big fan of not offending the emperor of the known world, so I gotta solve this problem. Ah, millennialism. This is all a metaphor. It's all a metaphor. Well, what here about Israel when it says that Jesus is going to come specifically back to Israel and sit on the throne of David. That's, that's spiritual. The, the, it's talking about the church, not actual Israel. And it's talking about Jesus coming on the, the throne of, of man's hearts, you know. So if you wanted to hold to amillennialism, here's the point. If you were committed to that, you have to also hold to replacement theology. Because otherwise you run into all sorts of problems in the Bible, all kinds of contradictions. And that's why this all matters. I don't want any of you to get caught up in any replacement theology, any covenant theology, but I also want you to understand with churches, if they are committed to amillennialism, they are required to be committed to replacement theology. They don't have a choice. So when you have a church that says, well, we believe that the church has replaced Israel, and you say, what's your eschatology? Ah, millennial. Then here's what you know. They're not able to actually evaluate that area of theology honestly. Because if you're amillennial, you are pre-committed to believing in replacement theology. If you give that up, then you have to change your eschatological system as well, if that makes sense. That's why this all matters. God is not done with the Jewish people. He's got a destiny for the Jews. He's got a destiny for the church. Praise God, God's plan is to keep his promises to us and his plan is to keep his promises to Israel. So I never know why people would be in any hurry to believe that God has replaced Israel with the church. Don't you feel much more secure knowing that God made promises to Israel, he's gonna keep them and God made promises to the church and he's gonna keep them? Because I would say to anyone who holds to replacement theology, well, what if God just does with the church what he did with Israel? And he's like, you know, I think I could do better. I wouldn't feel that good about it. I feel way, way better knowing that God is keeping his promises to Israel and to the church. Because I wouldn't blame him sometimes if he looked at the church all around the world and said, I think I could do better. He probably could. But praise God, he's a God who keeps his promises. Verse 17, Paul says, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Underline the marks of the Lord Jesus. At this time in history, slaves, especially slaves that had run away and been recaptured, were often branded or tattooed with their master's name. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, Judaizers, don't harass me. Don't mess with me because I'm a slave of my master, the Lord Jesus. And in Paul's case, the branding or tattooing he bore consisted of scars and wounds that he had acquired while ministering the gospel in hostile territory. Paul considered those to be the marks of the Lord Jesus, evidence that he belonged to the Lord. Without getting into it, I would just encourage you to be encouraged by that if you have ever sacrifice something for the Lord, if it's ever hurt to be faithful to the Lord and you've been left with a physical scar or an emotional scar, a financial scar, whatever it is, Paul would say, listen, those are the marks of the Lord Jesus. Those are the marks, the indicators that you belong to him, that he is your master. And the only person who had the right to judge a slave was their master. And Paul was using that analogy to say, you guys don't even have a right to judge me. You're not my master. I don't have a choice about what I preach. I'm simply following my master's instructions. And he has declared that salvation is available to everyone. He has declared that salvation is by faith alone. Paul's ultimate point was that because he was a slave of Christ, 
Those who messed with him were by implication messing with his master, the Lord Jesus. And also tucked away in this is is a slight dig at circumcision with Paul implying that if the Judaizers so badly wanted a physical mark that represented following Christ, that mark wouldn't be circumcision. It would be scars acquired by laying down their life in service to the Lord, the marks of persecution, not circumcision. And then in verse 18, Paul says, brethren, the grace, underlying grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, amen. Paul ends what has actually been a very tense letter by reminding the Galatians that he loves them, that they are his brethren, and he wanted the last word to be grace. The gospel is the grace of God at work in the past, the grace of God at work in our present, and the grace of God securing our future. Final fill-in. Galatians can be summarized thusly. I didn't try to use the word thusly. I just couldn't find a better word to use. Thusly. We're dead to the law, we're dead to the world, and we're dead to self. We are dead to the law, dead to the world, and dead to self, but alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. The memory verse for the whole book of Galatians would probably be Galatians 2.20, which says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And of course, Habakkuk 2.4, which inspired this letter, the just shall live by faith. The verse that changed the world more than once, sparking Paul to write Romans, Galatians, and I suggest Hebrews, and then sparking Martin Luther, and ultimately the whole Reformation. If you're looking for something to study in your own personal devotions, Romans or Hebrews would be a great and natural place to go after the book of Galatians. So what is the difference, in summary, between the law and grace? What is the difference between trying to be your own savior and placing your faith in Jesus to save you. What's the difference? Well, the law is perfect. That's why imperfect men can't keep it. The law is holy. That's why sinners are condemned by it. The law is just, therefore it cannot show mercy to the guilty. The law condemns the sinner, but grace redeems the sinner. The law reveals sin, grace atones for sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin, but by grace is the redemption of sin. The law says do and do not. Grace says it is done. The law says continue to be holy. Grace says it is finished. The law curses. Grace blesses. The law slays the sinner. Grace makes the sinner alive. The law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens the mouth to praise God. The law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst man. The law says the wages of sin is death. Grace says the gift of God is eternal life. The law says the soul who sins shall die. Grace says believe and live. The law was done away with in Christ, but grace abides forever. The law made us enemies of God. Grace made us children of God. I'm so glad that we are under the grace of God. I'm so thankful we are under the grace of God. And just before we pray, I'll say if you're here or or listening or watching online and you're not saved and you haven't given your life over to Jesus, then you need to know you're not under grace. You're under the law and you're condemned and I want to invite you to be set free and be made into a new creation by placing your faith in Jesus to be your savior giving your life to him, asking him to come and be the God over and in your life. And he will come into you and he will make you a new creation. And so with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, right now we thank you for the invitation of grace, of the gospel and of your word. The invitation to become a new creation, not because of anything we can do, but because you have done what we cannot. You've made us right with God. You've made a way for all our sins to be forgiven and paid for. For us to be raised from death to life along with your son Jesus. So Father, I pray for for anyone 
who right now or in the future listening to this or watching this is giving their life to you in this moment. Lord, I thank you that you will do that for them, that there are no exceptions to your grace, Lord. It is for every single one of us. And Father, for those of us who've already placed our faith in you, we just say thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us, not because of anything we have done, but because you are good, because you are gracious, and because you love us. Not because we deserve it, but just because you love us and you destined us to be your children, Lord. Thank you for adopting us into your family. And Father, we are so overwhelmed by your grace. I pray that it would hit us all in a fresh way this evening, that whether we're energized or tired, Lord, we would be overwhelmed by the blessing of being under your grace, Lord God. And that as we just soak in it, for a little bit this evening as we worship and as we pray and as we take communion, that God, your grace would just saturate us and would extend into every relationship we have, Lord, compelling us to forgive and release anyone of anything we hold against them, that your grace would saturate us and compel us to extend your grace to others as you have extended it to us. Lord, help us to never trade the freedom of the gospel for the bondage of the world system. Help us to walk in that freedom, to live in that freedom. Fearing nothing in the world, but needing nothing in the world. Not worshiping anything in the world. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.